Amen. That never gets old. Never gets old seeing individuals follow through in believers' baptism, proclaiming the goodness of God Almighty in their lives publicly. Uh, and there'll be an opportunity for you this very day if you have never uh, followed through in believers' baptism. You've placed your faith in Christ Jesus, but you've never followed through in believers' baptism. There'll be an opportunity at the end of the service for you to come and to make that known today. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you about that. We'd love to get that scheduled for you to come and to celebrate what God has done in your life through salvation publicly through baptism. Today, we're going to continue on in our uh, sermon series, Summer in the Psalms. And so you guessed it, we're going to be back in the book of Psalms. So you can go ahead and turn to the book of Psalms. A.W. Tozer is quoted as saying, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let go of everything else that the world tries to define you by. Let go of everything else that the world tries to say is important. And I believe that A.W. Tozer truly gets to the very heart of what is the most important thing about us. What we think about God. What we know about him. And as a result, what does that prompt us? What does that call us to do? And ultimately today, we're, we are going to be looking at that uh, together. And so if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, you're going to see that it is broken up into four sections, six verses in length for each section. 24 verses broken up into four sections of six verses each. And David is the author of this psalm underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what he's going to do is he's going to focus in on the first three sections. He's going to focus in on three characteristics, three characteristics of God Almighty. He's going to focus in on God's omniscience, verses 1 through 6. He's going to focus in on God's omnipresence, verses 7 through uh, 12, and then he's going to focus in on God's omnipotence, verses 13 through 18. Now, omni means all. And so we could paraphrase these three characteristics that David is going to look at uh, in regards to God's character in Psalm 139 by saying this. His omniscience means that he's all-knowing. He knows all things. His omnipresence means that he is everywhere. And his omnipotence means that he is all-powerful. And what we're going to see is that David is going to zero in on these three key characteristics of God Almighty. And I pray that today, even though you may have heard these terms before, even though you may know the definitions, I pray that you will have them truly solidified in your heart. In a wonderful book by a man named Dr. Paul Brand called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. He was a, a doctor in India who uh, ministered in leper, leprosy colonies. And he now resides in Louisiana and would do the same. He wrote this book called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. And in it, he recounts the tale about his wife who was an eye surgeon. And she ministered in India alongside of him, and they would go into villages, and sometimes just two doctors, her and another, would perform up to 100 cataract surgeries in one day underneath a banya tree. 
They go into one village that had been ravaged by drought, and she is recruiting individuals to help them through various tasks so that they can perform these surgeries in this village. One such individual she recruited was a 12-year-old boy. And this 12-year-old boy was to hold a flashlight directly on the cornea of the patient that was being worked on. And she wondered, how was this young boy going to be able to handle seeing eyes have surgery performed on them? I don't know about you. I'm not the dude to hold the flashlight in that instance. Probably not going to go well. The first five surgeries, he performed perfectly, absolutely perfectly. She was astounded at the way that he was able to perform his duty in light of what it was that he was witnessing for the very first time. The sixth patient, however, the flashlight started to shake. And the light failed to stay focused in on the cornea. And so she started to get a little bit worried about whether or not he was going to be able to do it. And it became pretty evident that he was not going to be able to do it in that moment. It wasn't until later when she talked to the young man that he said, the reason why I couldn't do that patient is because that patient was my mother. After the surgery and time passed and she healed, the son comes in. The mother has been blind since before his birth. And so through this surgery, after her eyes acclimate to the light, she's able to see her son for the very first time. And Dr. Paul Brand records in his book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, he records that the mother then says to, to her son, my son, I thought I knew you, but today I see you. My son, I thought I knew you, but today I see you. I believe that there may be individuals that are in this room right now that you would be able to say, I know about the omniscience of God. I know about the omnipresence of God. I know about the omnipotence of God, but you have not been able to truly see God in all of his majesty and all of his might and all of his glory because you have spiritual cataracts that are clouding your vision of who God is. And for us to truly live the Christian life, we must make sure that we see God clearly. See, we can try to form God into our own image. We can make God out to be what we want God to be. And we can start to reconstruct him in ways that are in complete opposition of his word as he has revealed himself to us. And I pray that today will be a day that you see God clearly. Because when we see God clearly, when we understand exactly who it is that we're worshiping in this place, it's hard for us to remain silent. It's hard for us to go back to business as usual, just living our lives for ourselves, neglecting the great commandment, neglecting the great commission, neglecting the great conformity. But when we understand who God is, then we understand who we are, the meaning and the purpose behind our life, and it radically transforms each and every moment of each and every day. And so David will then, after reflecting in the first three sections of God's 
omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence, we'll see his overflow. We'll see what happens when he doesn't just know God, but he sees God. When those spiritual cataracts are removed off of his eyes and he's able to see God clearly, we'll see what David's overflow or his responses of those truths being poured into his heart. So first, let's look at God's omniscience in verses 1 through 6. God's omniscience, meaning that God knows everything. And because God is all-knowing, he is the criterion, he is the definer, and the standard for truth. And therefore, his ways are always pure and authentically good. The world doesn't get to define truth. God defines truth because he is all-knowing. He knows all things. Now, look with me in verses 1 and three of, uh, one and 2 of Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. So this, this truth of God's omniscience, it's not an abstract truth. It's a personal experience. It is true and correct for us to say that God knows all things, but it's also true and correct for us to say that God knows me. Notice what David writes in verses 1 and 2. You have searched me and known me. You know. In other words, that excludes everybody else. He is separating God from everybody else. You and you alone know me. You and you alone know all things. Now, now think about that for just a second. Dwell upon that for just a second. That the creator of everything, the one that spoke everything into existence, the one that sustains everything, knows us intimately and desires for us to have a personal relationship with him. He desires to know us. Dwell on that for a moment. Let let those truths permeate throughout your heart. This idea that the all-knowing creator and sustainer of the universe desires to have a personal relationship with you. The holy triune God knows you, cares for you, died for you, reconciled you, forgave you of your rebellious sins, and adopted you into his forever family. Dwell upon that for just a moment, that he did that for you. And he did it knowing everything about you. See, the enemy loves to try to get us to to think that that maybe we can hide from, from God. Or if God knew everything about us, he wouldn't want anything to do with us. And that's the beauty of the gospel. He knows everything about you. He knows the darkest moments of your life that you don't want anybody else to know about. And yet he still chose to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you on a cross, even though he knows every aspect of your life. And the omniscience of God, for an unbeliever, that ought to be terrifying. Because God does know everything about you. God does know Every secret sin. God does know that the facade that you may put forth to the community, to your family, and to the neighbors. He knows about those secret sins that you may be covering up for a while. But truth always comes out in the light, especially in the end when judgment comes and all things are known. But for the believer, that ought to be at the very heart of our confidence. Because he does know the depths of our sin. He does know 
the secret sins that maybe nobody else knows. And yet he still sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you and make a way for you to be reconciled back to him. Now, look, look with me in verse 2. And we will see this idea that God knows all things. And first and foremost, God knows our posture. He knows our posture. In other words, he knows where you're standing straight. He knows where you're bent over and crooked. He knows that the posture that you are taking in life, he knows what it is that, that, that you are reaching for. He knows what it is that, that you have set in your heart. Look at verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. He knows everything about you. He knows your posture and your stance towards him. He knows your posture and your stance towards your neighbor. He knows your posture and your stance towards evil. He knows each and every aspect of that in our lives. But not only that, secondly, look at verse 3. God doesn't only know everything about your posture, but God knows our path. God knows where you've been. God knows where you are, and God knows where you're going. Look at verse 3. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. That's why we can rest when individuals make accusations against us that are not true. When individuals try to slander us, we can rest in the fact that God is our defender because he knows my path. He knows whether or not I was walking in darkness. The, the world, although they may be fooled and they may be deceived, God never will be. And so if I have individuals that are slandering me, if I have individuals that are attacking me, if I have individuals that are making false claims against me, I can stand firm in the knowledge that God knows all things. God's not deceived by the lies of the enemy. He knows my past. He, he knows my shortcomings. He knows where I fell victim to the schemes of the enemy. He knows where I stood strong and, def and defended the faith. He knows where I was a light in the darkness. He knows where I've been, and he still loves me and calls me out of that. He knows where I am right now, and he's in the process of sanctifying me and making me more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He knows where I'm going in the future, and he doesn't leave us nor forsake us. He doesn't abandon us. The beautiful truth of the reality of, of God's word. Now, look with me in, in verse 4. Verse 4 says this, that God knows even your perceptions. God knows how you perceive things. Think about Jesus when he would be around some of the religious individuals and he would be able to perceive what was going on in their heart. He knew exactly what it was that they were saying in their heart. That they may have tried with their double tongue, be able to, to speak something and couch it in terms to try and trap Jesus, but he knew that that flowery language hid behind viperous venom. See, isn't it good to know God Almighty knows all things? That those individuals that, that try to speak falsely to us, covering up and trying to hide a heart of deceit, God knows those things. God sees through those things. God can protect us from those things. He knows all things. He is an omniscient God. In verses 7 through 12, we see that not only is he all-knowing, but we see that he is ever-present. In verses 7 through 12, we see the omnipresence of God. Verses 5 and 6 say, You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain. In other words, what he says, this idea about God's omniscience, the idea about God's omnipresence, the idea about God's omnipotence, it's too high for us to understand. Listen, God's ways are not your ways. 
God's thoughts are not our thoughts. If God was small enough for, to be figured out in my brain, he wouldn't be big enough to help me in my times of need. If God was small enough for me to be able to figure out in my brain, he would not be big enough to help me out in my time of needs. We can't fully understand God or why he does the things that he does, but we can know that he is a loving and a good God that knows all things and still calls each and every one of us through faith in Christ, his children. God's omnipresence, verse 7 through 12, we see that David says this, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. In other words, he says, God, you're ever-present. Not only are you all-knowing, but you are ever-present. The omnipresence of God means this, because God's power and knowledge extend throughout every centimeter of his creation. He himself is present everywhere at all times. God is not confined by space and time. This is good news for each and every believer, because we see in verse 8, we see that uh, God is not absent even in death. God is not absent even in death. Verse 8 tells us, it says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell the uttermost parts of the sea, you are there. Uh, verse 8 shows us that even in death, if I go to heaven, guess what? God is there. If I go down into the pits of hell, guess what? God is there. Make no mistake about it. God is sovereign over all things, even hell. The devil's not ruling in hell. The devil is going to be underneath submission to God Almighty and complete torment and punishment in the lake of fire when God rights all wrongs and places him there. There's not an inch of all creation that God is not in control of. That ought to be good news for each and every one of us. God isn't even absent in death. We're just saying that truth. Death is just a doorway into resurrection life. To eternal life, that, that's all death is for the believer. It's just us taking our last breath here in this fallen, broken world and taking our first one in the kingdom where there is no more sickness, no more pain, no more disease, no more struggle, no more sin. Verse 8 shows us that God is not just absent in death, but God, God is not, not even absent in distance. So oftentimes, we, we find ourselves in the middle of something, and we want to run away from God. And we think that we can outrun God, like Jonah. And God may call us in one direction, but we start running in the other direction because we're trying to flee away from God. Look at verse 9. It says, if, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. In other words, what he's saying is if I got on a, a, a beam of sunlight, and I, I was able to ride the, the, the light at the speed of light and try to flee from your presence over the sea, I still couldn't get away from it. So many individuals spend so much time in their life trying to run away from God, and it is a foolish endeavor. 
So many individuals are spending their life trying to run from the truth of God's word, trying to play games with God, trying to hide from God. And God says, there is nowhere that you can go that you can be free from my presence. What a beautiful reality and a beautiful truth that is. Because no matter in the darkest moments of our life, no matter in the most distant moments of our lives, God is still there. And that's exactly what he goes on to, to tell us in verses uh, 11 uh, and 12. He tells us that if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. God is not absent in the darkness. God's not absent in the darkness. In fact, God's word says that what appears to be dark to us, that's light to God. He sees through all of that. Individuals that try to hide from God within the darkness of this world, individuals that try to burrow themselves down into the darkness of this world, God's mercy, God's grace, and God's love is right there to meet them no matter how deep they may try to crawl into the ground. Individuals say, I, you don't know what I've done. I've done too much. God couldn't save me. God couldn't love me. Listen, I might not know everything that you've done, but God knows everything that you've done, and he still extends to you grace and mercy. What the devil means for evil, God uses for good. The very thing that we would look at and say is darkness, God says, I work out all things for the good of those that love me and are called according to my purpose. And what is his purpose? Romans 8, 29 goes on to say to conform us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so even moments of darkness, God is working in our lives to bring about in us the image and reflection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God isn't absent in death. God is not absent in the distance. God is not absent in the darkness. God is ever present. And that ought to be good news for each and every one of us because the future is unknown. But here's the thing, my unknown and your unknown is God's known. And he's already gone before us and he's already prepared a way. And so no matter what it is the devil may throw at us, he can't put Jesus back into the tomb. He can't put Jesus back onto the cross. Our future has already been secured. And God Almighty is always an ever-present help in a time of trouble. And he is always there for us because he will never leave us nor forsake us. Now that ought to be good news worthy of us celebrating in this place today. But not only that, we see in the third section, we see that uh, he is going to focus in on God's omnipotence or the fact that God is all-powerful. We see this in verses 13 uh, through 18. Verses 13 to 18, David is now going to reflect upon God's omnipotence, and he's going to zero in on the power of God by looking at the creation of man. Only God can create man. Now, in our technologically advanced world, we may try to make things as lifelike as possible. You may hear something that, that, uh, along the lines of, man, you really should have seen that. It, it was so lifelike. But man's greatest attempts as advanced in technology as we, uh, we are, all we can do is make things lifelike. We can't make true life. Only God is the creator of that. He is all-powerful. He's the one that spoke everything into existence. He's the one that formed man from the very dust of the ground and breathed life into him. Only God can do that. Only God. All-powerful. In other words, when we talk about the omnipotence of God, we're talking about the fact that God is in control of his creation. And God's crown jewel of his creation is man. Now, I don't quite understand that. 
But in scripture, we see that we were given dominion over his creation, that everything was good before the fall of man, and that we were to be stewards over his creation. He put us in a very special and unique position, and we are the only ones that are made in the image of God. Now, in a few weeks from now, we're going to be in a study in the book of Genesis, and we'll look at that in greater detail. But we see in verses 13 through 14 that David is going to reflect upon the omnipotence of God in seeing that God's is incomparable. He's going to focus in on God's incomparability. Nothing can compare to God Almighty. Look at verses 13 and 14. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, let's just think about the eye for just a moment. The eye is a fascinating organ of the body. And that book that I referenced earlier, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, it is filled with beautiful truths about the human body tied into Scripture. And I recommend that you would get a copy of it, that you would read it. It is a fantastic read, and it shows you clearly the magnificence of God Almighty and the creation of the human body. The eye, only accounting for 1% of the total weight of one's head, Yet it houses 127 million visual cells. Named for their shape, the eye is composed of rods and cones. These these cells, these rods and cones line up in rows to receive images and transmit them to the brain. Rods, slender and graceful with uh, tentacle light, they extend toward light, outnumber the bulbous cones 120 million to 7 million. They are so sensitive that the smallest measurable unit of light, one photon, can excite them. Under optimum conditions, a human eye can detect a candle at a distance of 15 miles. Yet with rods alone, I would only see shades of gray, as on a moonlit night. Squeezed into the dense forest of rods, the larger cones give me more focal resolution and the ability to distinguish more than a million unique colors. When it detects... A designated wavelength of light, each rod or cone triggers an electrical response to the brain. The brain complies all these yes or no binary messages from rods and cones, and voila, we get an image. The feet require so much processing power that half of my brain is devoted directly or indirectly to vision. Now think about this. How amazing that our vision is Because we are completely unaware of all the encoding and decoding of data that is then decoded and reassembled in our brain. So each Sunday morning when I drive up onto this campus and I see Community Baptist, the building of, I don't see partial images. I see a whole image put together and I am reminded of all of the good things and the beauty and all of the memories that coincide with that image that I'm able to see because God has given me the ability to do so. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to you, but to me, that's pretty profound. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, there is anywhere between 60,000 to 100,000 miles of blood vessels in the human body. If they were taken out and laid end to end, they would be long enough to travel around the world more than three times. That's hard to believe. That, I, I look at my little skinny self, and I, I'm, I'm just thinking, how? How in the world? Mine may only go around two times. I don't know. 
Dr. Paul Bland would write this, in medical school, I learned about crucial cells that make their entrance for one dramatic act, then disappear. Think about this. this. This blows my mind. Before birth, only a third of the fetus's blood, the amount needed to nourish developing lung tissue, travels to the dormant lungs, since the fetus receives the oxygen through the placenta. A special blood vessel, the ductus arteriosus, I, I butchered that, shunts must... Uh, most of the blood to the rest of the body. Suddenly, at the very moment of birth, all the blood must take a new route through the lungs for oxygenation. The midwife or doctor waits anxiously for the baby to take its first breath. To accomplish this change, an amazing event occurs. A flap descends like a curtain, deflecting the blood flow back to the aorta. Over the next few days, a customized muscle squeezes shut the ductus Arteriosus, however you say that, the muscle exists only for this essential act. If it fails to perform its designated task, the baby may die apart from surgical intervention. If it succeeds, the heart permanently seals this duct shut and the body gradually absorbs it. On this little known group of transitory cells, every human life depends. Do you know that flap existed? Had no clue. But God designed us in such a way that one act, one specific thing that your body uses only one time and then dissolves into your body is present because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's the power of God Almighty. The human brain contains approximately 86 billion neurons. This is about the same as the number of stars in the Milky Way, give or take a few billion. These neurons are connected by trillions of connections or synopsis. Experts call this a neuron forest. Information runs between these neurons in your brain for everything we see, think, or do. These neurons move information at different speeds. The fastest speed for information to pass between neurons is about 250 miles per hour. That being said, neurons only make up 10% of the brain. Absolutely fascinating. It's the power of the God that we worship in here. It's the power of God Almighty who says, I love you. And I'll send my son Jesus Christ to die for your sins. Isn't it sad how often, though, we look at God's creation and we think negatively about it? We look in the mirror and we disparage what we see in the mirror. Or we disparage other individuals because maybe they don't live up to a standard that the world has created. But yet each and every one of us are made in the image of God. You know who your mirror is supposed to be? Your mirror is supposed to be Jesus Christ. Your mirror that you're supposed to look at is Jesus Christ. And in him, we see all of the truth of God that says, you know who you are? You're somebody so valuable, I'll go to a cross and I'll die for. That's who you are. Don't let the world define you. Don't let the world tell you whether you're important or not because you measure up to a certain standard. God Almighty says that I am your mirror, and you are fearfully and you are wonderfully made. Not only do we see that uh, God is incomparable, but we see the intricacy of God's creation through the, the eyes and through our blood vessels, through our brain, through, through our skin, we see that play out in, verses, uh, uh, in verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. 
But we also see that God has intentions for us. That he loves us so much that he has intentions for us. Look at verses uh, uh, 16. Look at verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and your book were written, every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. That God has intentions for us. He does have a plan for us. That he loves us. And as Ephesians 2.10 says of this reality, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. For a purpose. Your purpose is not to live according to the world. Your purpose isn't try to find the most joy you can have from the things of the world because those things will let you down. But you were created with a greater purpose. You were given good works that were made for you before the foundation of the world that you would walk in, that you would live out, that you would accomplish. God has a purpose for your life, and that purpose is to bring him glory through everything it is that you say and do. Now, here's the beautiful truth of the gospel. I'm amazed at the gestation process and the birth of a human being. It's amazing. It's hard to look at a brand new baby and and not get a glimpse of God Almighty. It, it, it's hard for me to imagine anybody that would see the birth of a child and say, there's not a God. The beauty and the majesty uh, of the birth. But can I tell you something? As powerful and as moving as that is, there's something more powerful and more moving than the birth of a child, and that's the rebirth of an individual. Contemplate the power of God to take one that is dead in their sin and to make them alive in Christ Jesus. And just as we're amazed at the human body as it grows and at life as they grow, think about the amazement of God Almighty chiseling away all the things of the world off of us through the sanctification process to make us look like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What a beautiful truth that is, the power of God Almighty to take individuals that were dead and make them alive in Christ Jesus. Now, ultimately, when we talk about the omnipotence, the omnipresence, And we talk about the omniscience of God Almighty. Ultimately, what we're talking about is the lordship of God. That's what we're talking about. That's what David is reflecting upon. David is talking about and reflecting upon the lordship of God. Because essentially, the lordship of God is control, authority, and presence. The lordship of God consists primarily of those three things. Control. In other words, he's sovereign. He makes the rules. Authority. And his presence. And as we've seen, this triad is equivalent to what it is that we've been looking at in the three omni attributes of God. God's omnipotence is his control over all things. God's omniscience is his authority to declare what is true. And his omnipresence is his real existence in every time and every place. So when we talk about God's omnipresence, when we talk about God's omniscience, when we talk about God's omnipotence, ultimately what we're talking about is the lordship of God. And as a result of the lordship of God, when we reflect upon who it is that has created us, when we reflect upon who it is that we serve, who it is that we've given our lives to, there ought to be an overflow or a response out of the truth that God is all-knowing, that God is ever-present, and that God is all-powerful. And the last section of Psalm 139 is David's overflow of those realities. Verses 19 through 24 show us 
what his response is to the reality of God's lordship. Hebrews 3.15 tells us this truth. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Remember Dr. Paul Brand's wife and the story she recounted of that mother that was having that eye surgery? And when she saw her son, she said, son, I knew you, but today I see you. See, we can know all, we can have a head knowledge about all of these things, but our hearts can still be hard to what it is that they are calling us to do in light of those realities. There are many individuals that come and sit in churches all throughout this country and all throughout this world that can tell you in greater detail the theological systematic truths of omnipresence, omniscience, and omnipotence, but yet none of that has affected their heart to the point that they have surrendered everything to serve that God. And there may be individuals that are in this room right now that would say, I know all about that. I know all about those truths, but you don't have a personal relationship with God Almighty. Oh, you may come to church all the time. You may read your Bible all the time, but yet you are doing those things in an understanding that it's those things that have burned you salvation. You may not articulate it that way. You may be able to give the Sunday school answer of what salvation is. But has those truths truly penetrated your heart to where everything in your life has changed? Because when we truly see God for who he is, then we understand that we can't go back to living our life the same way as when we encountered him. I'm reminded of the wise men when they encountered Jesus. Remember what it says in Matthew? They returned home but they returned home a different way. See, when you truly have an encounter with Jesus Christ, you can't go back the way you just came. He radically transforms our lives completely into what it is that he has called us to and what it is that he wants us to be. Luke 6.45 tells us this. A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. Don't harden your heart to these truths. Don't allow these truths just to stay here in your mind. Allow them to penetrate into your heart that God is all-knowing, knows everything about you, but still he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you. That God is ever-present, that he won't forsake you or leave you, that he's not absent in death. He's not absent in the distance that you may feel in this moment. He's not absent in the darkness that you may be living your life in in this moment. Out of the overflow of our heart, one speaks, one lives. When we truly see God for who he is, our lives are radically transformed. Romans 15, 13 says this. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That you may overflow with hope. That you allow the truth of who God is, not just to remain in your mind, but to penetrate your heart. And now you live a life overflowing of the hope and the truth and the grace and the mercy and the love that God has poured out into your own lives. Skip Heidzik says this. I like to put it this way. Since God's ability transcends my reality, it's best for me to bow at his immensity. Let me say that again. Since God's ability transcends my reality, it's best for me to bow at his immensity. God is always greater than our present knowledge of him. 
because of how awesome and mighty he is and because of how weak and frail I am, the only, the only proper thing to do is to bow in worship of him and to surrender every aspect of our lives over to this all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful God who says, I love you so much. I sent my son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. And that's exactly what we see in David's life as he responds to the omniscience, the omnipresence, and the omnipotence of God. Look at verses 19 through 22. We see that God's lordship overflows in dedication. That what David is going to say is, I'm dedicating my whole life to you. That I'm on your team. I'm serving you and you alone. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. In other words, I'm on your side, God. I give everything to you, and anybody that opposes you, they're opposing me because I am surrendering my life to you and to you completely. Now, how do we reconcile this passage with what Jesus says, that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves? Can I tell you something? To, to, to hate with perfect hate is to love with perfect love. In other words, the reason why I hate the sin in your life so much is because that sin is destroying you and it will separate you from God Almighty for all of eternity. And I love you so much that I despise that sin at work in your life that is separating you from a perfect and a holy God. And so out of my great love for you, I'm going to make sure that I'm not going to just gloss over those things that are destroying your life. I'm going to speak truth into your life because God can set you free from those things. God can take you out of your rebellion and out of your dark. And so I love you so much that I hate the sin that is at work in your life. Amen? That's how you love your neighbor. You want to know how you really love your neighbor? You speak truth into their life. See, the world has convinced us the most loving thing we can do is to be quiet. Christians, as long as you meet, as long as you meet in your little building, that's fine for now. You seen what they're doing in Canada? Burning churches down? As long as you mean your little building, that's fine. But don't you dare bring any of God's truth into the schoolhouse. Don't you dare bring it into the courthouse. Don't you dare bring it into the White House. Don't you dare bring it anywhere outside of this building right here. As long as you meet in your little group for now, that's okay. But you better not bring that truth out here. Why? Because individuals love the darkness and they hate the light. But that's not loving. The most loving thing we can do is to hate the sin that is at work in this world and individual's life and speak truth into them. God's lordship should not only just overflow in our dedication to him, but God's lordship overflows in desire. In our desires, look at verse 24. He says, or excuse me, verse, verse 23. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. In other words, David's desire in light of who God is is that I want to be holier. I want to live a more holy life. I want to look more like you. I want to have a life that is pleasing to you. Search me and show me anything that is in my life that does not truly reflect you. And I pray that you would remove it from my life. Now, that's a dangerous prayer. But when's the last time you prayed it? Search me, O oh God any grievous way, I want you to expose it. I want you to eradicate it. I want you to remove it from my life. No longer trying to live half in the light, half in the darkness, 
those little pet sins that we run to every once in a while. God, I want you to eradicate everything in me that is not of you. Search me, oh God. Any grievous way, remove that from me. When's the last time you prayed that prayer? I pray if you haven't prayed in a while, you'll pray it today. Thirdly, God's lordship overflows in direction. Look at the last half of verse 24. As he concludes the psalm, he says, lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, I understand who you are. I understand who I am. And, and the direction that I tend to take my life is nowhere near the direction that you're going to take my life. And even though I may not always understand the path you're taking me on, I know who's leading me down that path. And you're a good and a merciful and a mighty God who knows all things, who's ever present, who's all powerful. And so therefore, I'm following after you. I'm going with you. I don't care where that leads me or where that takes me, but I'm following after you. And so when we understand the lordship of God Almighty, then... We dedicate our lives to him. When we understand the lordship of God Almighty, then we desire the things of God. When we understand the lordship of God Almighty, the direction of our life is completely set by God himself on where it is that we will go. And so faced with the reality of God being all-knowing, ever-present, and all-powerful, we are left with nothing else nothing else but to bow down and worship in complete surrender with heart-filled adoration. When you let it move from here to here, the only proper response is to overflow with praise and a life completely surrendered to him. Have you done that? Can you say, I've known you, but today I see you.